You are listening to Living for the Cinema with Jeff Gershon. I am a cinema enthusiast of all genres, here to discuss with you one film every episode. The good, the bad, and the ugly of what makes each film unique. Spoiler alert. No matter when this film was released, there's a good possibility I will be revealing spoilers about the plot or even possibly the ending. So just be warned. Ferrari, which came out in 2023 and was directed by Michael Mann. It stars Adam Driver, Penelope Cruz, Shailene Woodley, Daniela Piperno, Jack O'Connell, Sarah Godon, Gabriel Leone, Eric Houge, and Patrick Dempsey. The genre would be sports drama slash biopic. You have perhaps a crisis of identity. Am I a sportsman? Or a competitor? If you get into one of my cars, you get in the wind. All of us are racers. It's our deadly passion. Our terrible joy. If Anthony is looking for a scapegoat, then here I am. Two objects cannot occupy the same point in space. the same moment in time. When so? Go beat the hell out of them. Wow, this was a tough one. This movie is beautifully shot and crafted with generally strong performances across the board. It's thrilling when it needs to be, and there's a haunting sadness at its core that cannot be denied. But it left me a bit cold at the end. Now, maybe my expectations were too high considering who directed it, and how even his weakest films, like Public Enemies, Black Hat, yes, the two most recent ones before this, they each at least had very satisfying conclusions. Hell, I will still go to bat for Public Enemies, because for all that film's structural shortcomings, he still managed to end that movie on a pitch-perfect note, with one key line of dialogue. When he went down, he said something. I put my ear next to his mouth, and what I think he said was this. He said, tell Billy for me. Bye-bye, Blackbird. But as this movie concluded, I was just left confused, even thinking, wait, there's more, right? Admittedly, it is tough to tackle history, and even tougher to determine just how much of a bite that you're going to take with your particular portion of history. Obviously, even when it comes to one historical figure, it's not realistic to tell the whole story. You have to be discriminating so as to paint the most interesting portrayal within a limited runtime. And it feels, at least upon first watch, that with this particular part of the story of Enzo Ferrari, I believe taking place mostly around the summer of 1957, at a critical point for the man and his car company, Michael Mann and his screenwriter Troy Kennedy Martin might not have made some of the best choices. Yes, there are compelling personal arcs for both Enzo, played by Adam Driver, who's good but never quite breaks through entirely through that accent. Barra doesn't lift. The corner races at you. You have perhaps a crisis of identity. Am I a sportsman or a competitor? How will the French think of me if I run Baron to a tree? You lift. He passes. He won. You 
and his estranged wife, Laura, played by Penelope Cruz, who all but steals the movie. Yes, I blame you, I blame you, because you let him die. The father deluded himself. The great engineer. I will restore my son to health. Swiss doctors, Italian doctors, bullshit. I could not. I did not. Because you were so consoled at Castelvetro, you lost your attention. You had another boy growing stronger while Dino was getting weaker. There are compelling personal arcs for both of them. But within the overall context of everything occurring around them, it still felt as if this movie was missing a sizable chunk of a third act. Now, regardless of my issues with its structure, this is still a gorgeous movie. The period detail, the costumes, the sound design of the cars, the Italian locations. DP Eric Messerschmidt does exemplary work and has been having one hell of a year. Shailene Woodley, who's gotten a lot of criticism, I actually think she's quite good as the other woman in Enzo's life, Lena, with whom he has a hidden son. Also making a strong impression is Daniela Pimperno playing Enzo's strong-willed mother, Adelgisa. She has some strong moments. As for the rest of the cast, well, I have to be honest in that most of them either didn't register or I was unable to tell several characters apart, sorry. And that was even to the story's detriment for me when it came to the casting of two dramatically important Italian female characters who I mistakenly thought were the same person towards the end of this movie, which of course they were not. If you see, you might know what I'm talking about. Overall, I feel like Adam Driver's sheer presence carries most of his performance, even when the accent is not completely helping. Just not all of his words come out as clearly as they should, sorry. And maybe it was just a sound mix issue on my part where I saw it. Regardless, man has always been adept at shooting his protagonists, or his antiheroes, for maximum effect when they are wordless or just staring. And he pulls off that same magic here. We feel the weight of every action on Enzo's part just with how he carries himself. From a pure physical standpoint, it was a strong choice to cast Driver. I just wish I could have understood all of his dialogue. You blame me for his death? Yes! Yes, because you promised me he wouldn't die! Everything. I did everything. Table showing what calories he could eat. What went in, what came out. I grafted degrees of albuminoria, the degrees of azotemia. Diuresis. I know more about nephritis and dystrophy than cars. This brings me to the categories. The first category would be the best needle drop. This is the best song cue or piece of score used throughout the runtime of the film, because music is essential to film. And as is the case with most Michael Mann films, the music choices here are pretty impeccable. For the first time, he has collaborated with British composer Daniel Pemberton, who's capping off a pretty strong year as he also just composed a true banger score for previous episodes, Spider-Man Across the Spider-Verse. Whereas that score was very synth-based, this is more of a traditional orchestral score, but it's no less affecting, especially the haunting main theme, which is repeated throughout, titled, fittingly, Enzo Ferrari. my personal choice for the most effective usage of music would be man actually bringing back a piece of music from an older film of his and with an interesting twist no less 
I'm going to delve into this just a bit more with the next category, but in the interest of not spoiling a key scene for a movie which just came out, I'm not going to get any more specific than as to say, towards the end of the movie, the camera pans along some pretty horrific imagery. And the music that we hear overhead is an absolutely gorgeous piece of choral score from Mann's 1999 drama, The Insider. The music is a collaboration between Australian composer Peter Bork and the legendary Australian singer Lisa Gerrard formerly of the gothic duo Dead Can Dance, who provides fantastic vocals. This track is called Sacrifice. And here's the kicker. The music helps provide a very key emotional backdrop for what we are seeing on screen during the sequence in Ferrari. It's very likely the most disturbing scene from any film that I have seen this past year. Just completely caught me off guard. It works very well with this scene. And yet, when we first heard this music almost 25 years ago during The Insider, it provided the soundscape for what was actually the most triumphant moment in that story. So yes, we are talking about a piece of music which is so versatile, it can be utilized to convey 100% opposite tones in two different movies from Michael Mann. The next category would be Wasted Talent. This is the most underutilized talent involved with the film. Okay, semi-spoiler alert. Spoiler alert. Although we are talking about real events which occurred more than 60 years ago. Just bear in mind. This movie ends on a very grim note as far as I'm concerned. But this is not a case of me expecting a happy ending. No. This is Michael Mann we're talking about. I mean, Heat, Mohicans. Those movies have the furthest thing from happy endings. Very tragic, actually. A warrior goes to you swift and straight as an arrow shot into the sun. Welcome him and let him take his place at the council fire of my people. He is Uncas, my son. Tell him to be patient and ask death for speed. But towards the end of Ferrari, we witness a truly horrifying incident. It's unexpected if you're not aware of the history, which I wasn't. But that's not the issue. The unsparing manner in which this incident is presented is so effective that it casts a shadow on the remainder of the movie, which unfortunately is not much. It raises more questions and even raises the stakes of the story. And my issue is that the aftermath of this particular incident feels somewhat brushed aside, mostly unresolved on screen, and barely resolved within a couple of sentences of closing text at the end of the movie. Just bizarre. Now, clearly, Mann and Martin made a conscious choice to not delve into the investigations and drama resulting from this particular incident. Maybe there wasn't much to it, although from what I understand now, there was. But then why show it this way? Maybe they wrote themselves into a corner, and to satisfyingly resolve this would have turned this into a three-hour movie, which just wasn't in the cards. Okay, spoiler over. So yes, it pains me to say this, but as far as I'm concerned, the wasted talent here is Michael Mann. 
since it was very likely his decision on how to structure this movie, which hurts it the most. The next category would be the trailer moment. This is a scene or moment that best describes this movie. So what do you think? There is no ashtray. Are you a prima donna? You ever try flicking ash out of a car at 200 kilometers an hour? I'm offering you a brand new car which has the edge on Maserati. Bullshit. The Maserati is faster and it has an ashtray. If I put in an ashtray, will you drive it in a mille million? Yes, undoubtedly, the racing sequences here are simply fantastic. And one in particular likely rivals even the best action sequences that man has ever directed. Pretty much most of the third act of this movie, the final 40 or so minutes, is devoted to the Mille Miglia, a now defunct epic open road race around Italy, which runs around a thousand miles. A thousand miles across bad roads with sheep and dogs, anything can happen. We have to win the Mille Miglia, then orders for sports cars will follow. And Mille Miglia is Italian for a thousand miles. Get it? It goes throughout various public areas and various terrains around Italy, including right through downtown Rome. Enzo Ferrari has dispatched five different cars and racers to participate in this race, and we follow not only each of them during this extended sequence, but also Enzo himself as he travels to various locations to follow up on their progress, usually via phone. The cinematography, the editing, the real locations used, the piercingly loud sound effects, everything about this sequence is just masterful, as we rarely have any doubt as to what's going on overall in the race and how the key racers are faring. Therefore, if I had to choose one highlight of this entire extended section of the movie, it would probably be best to refer to it as sort of the calm before the storm, even though I would highly doubt that what we're watching on screen is remotely calm. I mean, let's just say it's the portion of the race before things get truly hairy. We're roughly around 100 minutes into the movie, and our racers have just finished what seems like a very treacherous leg through Rome itself. Cramped streets, narrow turns, spectators everywhere. So now we find ourselves following these guys through the mountains. I believe the Tuscan a million a pennies, if I'm not mistaken, and my apologies if I've gotten the geography wrong here. Obviously, they're driving at high speeds on cliffside roads. That's anything but tranquil. But as the camera pulls out to see these shrinking specks of cars outlining the edges of these mostly green mountains, it at least takes us to a briefly expansive point of view, and it is breathtaking to see. And now the final category, which would be the MVP. This is the person or people who are most responsible for the success of this film. Yeah, this was kind of a surprise to me, but at the end of the day, this is Penelope Cruz's movie, as she gives an electric powerhouse performance as Laura Ferrari. Excuse me, please. My husband isn't here. He's out, whoring. Grazie, buongiorno. She is a force here, playing an embittered, suspicious woman, just barely holding on to a singular purpose. She's basically the unofficial CFO for the Ferrari company at the outset of the movie, and holding on to her own agency after enduring the loss of her only child. She is so good here within this setting, delivering just the right sort of ruthless vibe that she would have fit right into the sort of crime epic which Mann or Martin Scorsese were directing about 30 years ago. If Mann is smart, and I know he is, he will find a major role for her in Heat 2 hopefully coming soon. For delivering the best performance in this film and providing the most spark, Penelope Cruz is the MVP. You should assign me control of your stock in the company and the freehold uh, so I can deal. Because Henry Ford won't deal with a woman. No. Because if it comes to a deal, it'll be hard and fast. I have to have all the cards in my hand. Well, half the cards are in my hand. Laura, what do you want me to say? 
Mr. Ford, we have a deal, but first I must wait until I ask my wife for permission. Yes, you can say that. You know what? I'm gonna give you power of attorney over my stock so you can deal. For half a million dollars. I don't have half a million. You will if you make a deal. My rating for Ferrari would be three and a half stars out of five. Yeah, in case it wasn't obvious, I was a bit disappointed with this one. And that's not only because of the talent behind the film setting such a high bar, but also, if I'm being honest, the year of movies which has preceded it. Capping off a 2023 stocked with massive, auteur-driven true story epics like Napoleon, Oppenheimer, and Killers of a Flower Moon, this movie also serves as yet another reminder of just how damn tricky it can be for even the most talented of directors to tackle even just a sliver of history and to adhere it to their massive vision. Yeah, there was definitely a disconnect here with man, because I don't see how he could have not filmed that sequence, that Milly Milia, but placing it within the movie when he does just moves too much weight to an ending which really doesn't happen. And we've seen issues like this even with the smaller to mid-range true stories that have come out this past year. There have been a lot of them, like Air, Blackberry, and Tetris. All films that I generally enjoyed, but still felt a bit incomplete. Though to be fair, in the case of Blackberry, I might have honestly just missed something given the circumstances that I watched it under. Because I watched half of it on a plane, half of it at home, and I'm wondering if I missed some key dialogue. Otherwise, I think it was an excellent movie. You think I won't fucking do it? I'm from Waterloo, where the vampires hang out! Of the bigger ones, though, for all of their brilliance, I still feel like from this past year, Killers of the Flower Moon succeeded the most in achieving that perfect blend. Though even in the case of that film, with all the backlash, and some of it justified, you'll find many who disagree. Regardless, I am confident that I will be revisiting this movie again in the future. How could I not? There's just too much brilliance here to ignore. And if you're looking to watch Ferrari, it is now playing in theaters. And that ends another Deadly Passion, Terrible Joy review. Sorry, I had to try. I have taken Italian. Please like, subscribe, and share the Living for the Cinema podcast, and follow and like us on Facebook, Instagram, and Letterboxd. And join us next time for another review from Living for the Cinema. Living for the Cinema.